Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Albert Nuremberg, who was the first guest on the podcast. So this is, I think we're on number 65, number 66, something like that of the podcast now. So this is a, a great, uh, great sort of homecoming for our first guest. Albert Nuremberg is a journalist, a filmmaker, hypnotist. I mean, I could go on for a long time. You've had an incredibly uh, varied, complicated career, um, which I've had the pleasure of witnessing most of it i've known albert for over 30 for 30 years no more than 30 years wow. 35 years 36 years <laughs> 36 <laughs> years i've known i've known you um so i've seen a lot of it i've seen a lot of your sort of evolution different incarnations of how you've developed yourself um and today we're here to talk uh, about sort of most recent incarnation of what you've been working on now. But I don't know, maybe just for listeners who have uh, been living under a rock and they don't know who you are, if you could sort of tell us a little bit about yourself and what you what you do. It's funny because I would try to think about like, like how other people experience me. And so a lot of people know me through a documentary called Stupidity, which was not one of my master works. It was just that when George Bush was president, nobody would call him stupid. <laughs> And, uh, and and though though years later everyone called him stupid, and uh, I made the first documentary that said, "Hey, maybe this guy is actually stupid, and he's part of a movement that celebrates stupidity." Uh, little did I know that years later there would be even a greater representative of this phenomena. <laughs> but so that's how a lot of people know me. And then um, another way is through hypnosis. I did a TEDx called "Is Hypnosis Fake," uh, which is approaching ten million views. Uh, so some people know me through that. And then uh, I was been a journalist in Canada and uh, wrote for newspapers. And I do, did Laughology, a documentary about laughing, which is how I actually like to be known because that's where I feel like my heart is in, in, in laughing. Yeah. Um, so. Well, it's funny because depending upon when – day it is. Well, de- <laughs> well, depending upon when people were really familiar with your work, when I mentioned your name to somebody – They'd be like, aha! They, they either think They're of hypnotist. you – There's some people who think of you as this – Angry. Super, super hard-nosed, like, Straight. investigative journalist yeah. who's infiltrating neo-Nazi yeah. groups and is, you know, like a really kind of 
old school kind of like journalist who's trying to like bring down powerful, you know, evil empires, right? And there's the people who think of you as that. Then there's people who think of you as this clown, clown kind of fun, fun guy who's just like fungus, just fucking around, right? And then there's other people who think of you as the the hypnotist guy who really has a kind of a therapeutic angle. So as a thousand years old. That's and the thing old. is, is like what I always tell them is like those are all him, and there's like ten other, <laughs> and ten other versions of him that you're yeah. not aware of, and they're all completely him. <laughs> so, uh, but what is this this latest project that you're working on? Okay, thank you. Uh, um, latest project is called Wild X. Um, it came about because. Uh, I've been speaking at um, TEDx-type um, events. I, I do Idea City every year, uh, which is in Toronto, and, and TEDx. Uh, and I really started to feel that uh, they are chicken. Now, I don't want to say they're all chickens or anything like that, but there's a lack of urgent truth and reality. And at the same time, I was working on a documentary about climate change uh, over the last couple of years, and that really sobered me up badly. And I thought there's, there's a lot that needs to be said now. And so myself and a few other people cooked up this event in Montreal, October 5th, called Wild X, which is a TEDx that's about the, the wildness that we need right now. That's my simple way. So when you say wildness, like, because I know there's people that are involved in sort of the yeah. rewilding movement, and yeah. it's about yeah. it's about kind of getting in touch with place and things like that. But you're when you say rewilding, you're talking more about actually... Uh, developing a kind of urgency around climate change. Yeah, um, I like I'm probably not the only one, but but working on this film and talking to um, a number of like uh, experts in the area, like one when, when question I would ask people over and over again is uh, sometimes facetiously, but I asked them, I said, well, "Are we all going to die? And uh, when are we all going to die?" And uh, uh, what's scary is that we're all going to die is on the horizon. Uh, and um, and uh, and nobody's really doing anything about it. It's actually a kind of like everybody, everybody's watching. That scene in the movie was a huge tidal wave rearing up, and we're all watching it crest as it moves towards us. And um, I actually think there's a lot that can be done, or if there isn't a lot that can be done, you should die trying. And I so I'm I my research pointed me directly in the direction of mass reforestation. And rewilding, and uh, and it actually, it's it's much bigger in Europe than it is here, and I think it's for this really weird reason. North Americans live under the illusion that we're wild over here because we're we've got trees. Uh, we're closer to. We feel like we weren't, you know, um, as heavily colonized as Europe or something like that. But in fact, we aren't very wild. They they got every single tree in eastern North North America at one point. Um, there's very little wildness left. Um, so it actually. Uh, while rewilding and reforestation ticks the necessary boxes that everybody can do to try to save ourselves from disaster. And so we, we created a conference where we sort of like put that on display. But it's not – there's no life if it's only uh, reforestation. There's also rewilding your internal self. There's rewilding your nature. There's rewilding your sexuality and a bunch of other factors that are uh, that are in on this conference as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I always am – deeply disturbed by is that I have friends who live in China and they tell me that like one of my friends is probably listening to this pod will be listening to this podcast he sh- has showed me pictures of when he first moved there which was you know about like about 20 years ago and the smog 
in the cities and how they've taken all of these like positive things. They've reduced the smog like crazy. You used to have to wear masks like when you're walking around like in the city he lives in. Now they've got really high, fast, like really amazing kind of rail. They've got all these wonderful, they're doing all these things. They're planting trees like crazy. They are taking climate change very, very, very seriously. And they see this as a civilizational threat. Yes. However, this creeps me out because the reason they're able to do that is because it's a totalitarian, authoritarian government that yes. can just t- top down. Yeah. They can decide that something's a problem. Yeah. And the thing is, is you know, let's let's not cherry pick here. Their totalitarian societies have decided things were a problem and they were fucking wrong. Yeah. And they killed tons of people and it was a disaster. Yeah. However, when they decide something's wrong and it actually is a problem, they seem to be able to move much more swiftly than here, where our governmental structures are set up in such a way that they're set up so that it's hard to get anything done. That that's 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 not a bug. It's a feature. Yeah, they're supposed to be kind yeah. of you know set up in a way where you know interests will go against interests and things like that. So it's very hard if you've got a powerful powerful interest within your government within your society that don't want you know we were talking about this before we went on air. Like if you've got an oil and gas industry that's got a lot of money to throw around, they can just make sure that this is deprioritized. I mean, so how do you, that's not a, because I don't want to live, I like being in a democracy, but I don't want to die. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you, how do you square that circle? India. Uh, I say India only because, because uh, I was in India recently and I, and I saw that, um, uh, China's reforesting like crazy, but so is India. But 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 um, and India is not the same totalitarian state, though it has some of this, some problems. Obviously. Oh, India is a democracy. Yeah, like a straight up democracy. And it's a big, diverse, complicated, yeah, amazing civilization. So so what I'm saying is they are also able to reforest, but it's not just like like this is something that if we were real Canadians, we would be out there growing forests like crazy. That's what we do. Instead of pretend to do, you know what I mean? So if we were real Canadians, we would be reforesting like crazy. That's why we need Wild X, because we're not. Because, um, you know, in fact, if you drive around and you look at reforestation in in Canada, what do you see? You see actually rows of trees. Those people are not growing forests. They're growing trees. And the reason why they're in rows, so they can drive equipment up the rows and take the trees down when they're ready. So the whole thing, where you sort of, there's a moment where you wake up and you realize, oh, I'm, this is the matrix. And Canada is a little bit of the smug matrix of we think we're on top of these things. We think that, you know, we're as bad as Brazil in terms of deforestation. We're the same level and we got to do something. That's why, this is weird. Like, you know, it's funny. A lot of people are reluctant environmentalists all my life. You know, I, like you, I'm a wild man. I know you're a beast. <laughs> you're a beast. I'll explain later what I mean, but... But I am a wild man. I was wild man from when I was a kid. It's something that I got with my brother, I think, um, at early age. Um, so we. So my point is that um, I was always an environmentalist, but I never ever thought of myself because I think environmentalists. I think finger wagging, you know, recycle now. People <laughs> getting spanked for you know um, not eating vegan, you know, fast enough. Um, so so. Uh, but I think that I, I have reluctantly been thrown up against the wall and realized 
I got to be an environmentalist. If we're going to survive, we all got to be. We're now a world of reluctant environmentalists. We've got no choice. Um, It's our survival. Technology is not going to save us. I love love technology. I would have hoped that it was true. I can tell you a funny – I should tell you one funny story about this film is that as part of it – and I want to say – I should explain that part of this is my producer, Nick Sheehan, who made – a good part of this happened and brought us to some of the key people that, you know, illuminated us. But um, one of the things we're chasing is people that really have solutions. And first thing you discover with climate change is that, that uh, there's sort of a perception that everything has been tried because people are going to say, oh, you can't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. Those are like the same people who were running things before, from my experience. A lot of technology has not been tried, and there is some amazing things that can be done. But when they were trying to figure out how to take carbon out of the atmosphere, it was very interesting, the thinking. So they're developing these devices and machinery, and they realize whatever this machine has got to be, it's got to be big and has to go out into the atmosphere so it can pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Then it needs enormous amounts of surface area. So it needs a kind of lattice work of things. <laughs> and then these things... I see where this is going. Yeah, I see where this is going. <laughs> it needs to be thin sheaths. Thin sheaths that go into the atmosphere, and then somehow it's technology that, re, re, that you know that pulls carbon dioxide out of the you know out of the very air and transforms it. And, and of course, some people are like, "Wait, that device already exists. It's called a tree. It's a, it's tree. a tree. You know, <laughs> and it can do it at high efficiency. Yeah. And it does. It was born to do it. Yeah. That's what it was born to do. And it makes oxygen as a byproduct." We don't need to make weird machines. We don't need giant factories. We just need trees, and we need them now. We need them yesterday. Yeah. And and um, it's amazing how radically they can transform uh, a landscape, or the or the absence of them. Like I I was in this is years ago. Uh, I was in southern France uh, with with Thea, and we were traveling around and stuff like that. And there was the in the Massif Central. It looks like Arizona. Like, it looks like New Mexico or Arizona. It's all, like, kind of barren, windswept kind of plains and stuff like that. And then I was talking to, like, this old guy, and he said, no, actually, this all used to be incredibly tall forests. Mm. And it had a completely different um, environment. It was like you could grow lots of things. It was, like, really, really nice. But they, they basically cut down all of those forests to build the ships that fueled French, the colonial empire. And it was like actually Cardinal Richelieu was the one who like ordered the cutting down. And then when they cut all those down, a lot of the topsoil just blew away and went down through the streams and rivers. And so now all that grows there is like herbs and it's very and it's a hotter climate and stuff like that. So, you know, one of the things that you could also as as well as kind of carbon capture and storage, if we're going to have a warmer climate for a while now. One of the ways that you can help that is if you grow like lots and lots of trees around your city, it it cools them down, right? So even it would you know be be helpful. It, 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 you know, it's they tick so many boxes. It's not funny. One is of course their carbon capture. Two, they cool the, they cool the environment. They literally think about it. you walk into a forest; it's cooler. Um, uh, you know, I live in the woods. Um, you know, every day it's funny. I hear see on, you know in the summer I hear people whining about the humidity is killing me. I'm dying. It is never ever sorry. It is never too hot in the woods ever. Yeah, there's ne- virtually never happens as too hot in the woods. Um, but you're like actually in the woods. Like yes. you open your door and snakes come in. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, your house. It's like joke. it's unbelievable. It's 
but that's but, a true story, by yeah, the way. Yeah. <laughs> like that actually happened. But um, uh, what I was going to say is that, and not only that, they protect they they protect coastal areas. They bring down the rain literally when they're in forest, and their habitat, their habitat for pollinators for animals. All so that's why I'm saying is that uh, you know sometimes you, you're, you're going to double down on something, whatever. Is there a way to quazinkle down on <laughs> on reforestation? Because that is – you can't reforest enough. The, the only question is you got to do it right. You got to plant the right trees. You got to get it done quickly and you got to make it happen. The forests have to happen now. Um, you know, there's evergreens that can go into the ground now um, because the, the time – we don't have much time. And so – uh, what I was going to say is that you're totally right. You know, another there's examples of this all over the place. I was just on Wolf Island. Wolf Island is the largest of the Thousand oh, Islands. Wolf Island, yeah. yeah Wolf Island right is, off of Kingston. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a mystical kind of place. But Wolf Island's the same thing. It was totally deforested. It's a desert. And I was really struck by it. When you, when you walk around, it has a barren quality. I mean, it's because there's a lot of farms, but there isn't any reason there couldn't be trees between the farms or along the roads or anything like that or along the coast. Um, but they like so whoever made that place had it in for trees. And this one little town on Wolf Island, I think it's called Alexandria Bay. It's where the border is when you come over from the States, which for some reason is, it has a cemetery there. And there's a bunch of trees that they didn't kill. And there are these massive whales, leviathans, uh, that and you realize when you look what at what kinds them, of trees they're, like beech trees they're or white, uh, white pine, <gasps> oak. They're gorgeous. Oh wow! I become like a tree lover. Yeah, um, and um, particularly white pine. I am in love with the eastern white pine. Why? Because eastern white pine, white pine grows like a motherfucker. This tree, you put it in the ground in five years, it's a tree. It's a little tree, but it's a tree. Uh, it is tough. It is vibrant. It's the Led Zeppelin of trees. It doesn't follow conventional rules. It rocks. I'm telling you, grow eastern white pine whenever possible. That's the tree to grow. I mean, there's others as well, but that's one that can do it quickly. Yeah. That's where the we need uh, wisdom about these things. Of course, they're not... You never grow trees alone, but they have a particular role in the forest. Yeah, I mean, they, I remember reading at Samuel de Champlain's, like, his journals, where he's talking about, like, when he's coming through the St. Lawrence and stuff like that, and he could draw really well. Like, he could draw as well as Darwin. And, and he's drawing in his notebooks these trees, and they're, like, fucking huge. Like, they're, like, B.C. huge. These big, big trees, and they show, like, the... So the native people next to them, like, so you can see, like, yeah. scale and stuff like yes. that. And everybody thought for the longest time that, was that, that it was exaggeration, that, that yeah. he couldn't draw well or something like that, or he was exaggerating. And then they started, like, around, like, Troyvier and, and a couple of, they started, like, finding these stumps from trees that were native to here that were lining the St. Lawrence River. And these stumps were absolutely massive. You know, trees, like... 10 feet in diameter that were just, and they're like, he wasn't making this up. Yeah. This whole area yeah. was filled with really, really huge ancient trees. Yes. For trees to be in this climate that big, they have to be, you know, a thousand, two thousand years old. They have to be really, really, really old. I, I, and you know, it's interesting because it's the same phenomenon. There's a bunch of, um, Sketches. I've got the first sort of the first Englishman I think who came to the Eastern Townships sketched the various mountains, Owl's Head and Sutton and all these mountains, and he has these very romanticized sketches. And when I looked at them, I was like, "How come they all look taller than they actually are?" Because these mountains are not huge; they're around 
3,000 feet or so. Um, and I thought, did the guy kind of think, hey, I'm pretty amazing. I got on the boat to North America. And nobody yeah. can come. They're not going to come from Europe and check that the mountains weren't quite as you know astonishing as I portrayed them. But then I had the exact same revelation. I looked a little closer and I realized, wait, those mountains had 150-foot, 200-foot trees on top of them. Yep. So they really were – so if a mountain's 3,000 feet there, it's actually 1,000 of those feet are, are, are the base of the mountain. So it's only 2,000 feet tall. You add 200 feet, you're adding 10%. Yeah. They were 10% taller with the trees, and now they've got these little scrubby trees on top of them. And so, yeah, you're totally right. The, the – there were the there were legends here, massive, beautiful trees, and the kids today, uh, we have never even seen them. The only time you see old growth trees once in a while, you're in a park, and some while some trees survived, and it's it's still only halfway to to its true size. Yeah. Um, but that's part of it too. I mean that that we don't even know what an old growth tree tree looks like, looks like. So when, when I talk about rewilding Canada. Still, people still this idea. Canada is wild. No, it's not. They got every single tree. It's not <laughs> wild. <laughs> well, I, I try and you know, I think I told you this, but for a number of years, um, Annalise and I had this like this day camp in the summers that we ran for kids called Wildside Day Camp, and it was all about kind of getting kids to get in touch to learn about the plants and animals in their environment because the thing we were worried about is that. Everything they learn about nature, it's from nature shows. So they can name you all the dinosaurs, and they know the lions and tigers and shafts, but they can't name 10 animals from the actual environment that they live in, or the plants, they can't identify plants that they, they live in. And, they, and that develops this idea of, you know, we're here and nature is something you see on an eco-tour when you're on vacation with your parents in Costa Rica. Or nature is something over there rather than, than here. So we would take them around the tour, and one of the things that uh, that I learned on researching for all that was that the mountain was like almost completely deforested by by Drapo as the what he called the morality cuts because people were having sex on the mountain, yeah, famously. like crazy, and they yeah. would have because well, there were a number of reasons for that. It was because Montreal was incredibly overcrowded after World War II and in the fifties. Everybody was taking in like lodgers and stuff like that. So young people, they didn't have any place to go. So they would and go you, to the woods. they would go to the woods or the, if they would go to movie theaters and anywhere to like fool around. And so they would have like patrols going, and it's just like you know, like ah, ah, behind like every tree and stuff like that. <laughs> so you do that again. You do that again. Behind every tree, you know, people like <laughs> messing around. And so they got these big like Klieg lights <laughs> to sort of, and they would yeah. go around on Jeeps, like our own like decommissioned army Jeeps and would be like trying to like Cast find people. these people, but they could hide behind the trees. So they said, we're going to cut down the trees. So they immediately started cutting down the trees. Well, it, it was, thankfully it was some people from Westmount. Uh, primarily from Westmount, who got together and had this citizen group, and they saved a small fraction. I can't remember the exact number. They saved like like five percent of the trees on the mountain. But right after doing that, all sorts of things. There were these side effects that they didn't anticipate. Like we lost a whole bunch of species who have that have not come back. 
So all the frogs and toads were lost from the mountain. They're gone. There's no frogs and toads on the mountain. All sorts of different species were gone forever. But also the next spring, because there were no trees on the mountain, there were mudslides that took out like all sorts of houses. Like idiots. along, like, yeah, total idiots. Like all these houses were destroyed by mudslides because nothing could hold the land down. We should explain. I, I just think, you know, I know that you have a big following and that you should, that's not everybody knows Montreal. And then we should explain that there's a big, there, not a big, but there's a small mountain in the middle of Montreal, which is, which used to be essentially wilderness. And what you're describing is that when there was the, Sex panic of the Trudeau, of the Drapeau era. <laughs> yeah, in the 1950s. They, they, they yeah. took the trees down and and reshaped the mountain. Yes. Yeah, and it. I mean, now they've sort of it started to grow back, but then there was all these problems because when it grew back, it's exactly like you're talking about. They didn't really understand how forests worked. So, for instance, they used to gather all the leaves and burn them, and anytime old trees fell, they would pull them out and burn them. Well, actually, you're supposed to leave the old trees to rot and the leaves to rot because that's how it keeps the, the soil healthy. And they didn't know any of that, right? So they're now doing that and they're sort of – they're rewilding the mountain and, they, and they're, they're getting really good. It's like species are coming back to Mount Royal Park that I haven't seen in my lifetime. Like there's, there's ravens there now. There's different kinds of hawks. I've seen eagles there. What we need is for somebody to get attacked by a bear on, <laughs> on Mount Royal. Then we'll know that we're back. <laughs> I, actually, I, I actually asked that to a friend of mine. Last year we were walking. We're like, I wonder when is the last time somebody, somebody saw a bear on Mount Royal? Because that's the kind of thing where I feel like if you went through the Gazette archives or through, you could probably get an yeah. answer to that question. Yeah. But I wonder how far back <laughs> it was. You know, but but I mean, that's that's actually you bring up an important point. Like people talk about like rewilding, but you know my my co- two of my cousins they they live on Vancouver Island, um, not that far from Victoria, and the highest concentration of mountain lions in the world is on Vancouver Island. And, you know, my cousin has been actually stalked by a large 220-pound male mountain lion once. That's very scary. So, you know, a 30-pound mountain lion can kill you, so that's terrifying. 30-pound? That would be like a little kitten, wouldn't it? They're still very powerful, yeah. Really? So, I mean, that's... uh, I mean, how how do you factor that into your rewilding? Well, I know that... that, that, uh, like first, I should say I'm all in for reforestation, but rewilding is a little more complicated. There's going to be risks. There's going to be there's going to be problems. Of course, uh, ticks is one of the obvious problems, um, and there's going to be like more animal attacks for sure. But that's what you know. This is the nature of the crisis that we we're we are we're killing life on the planet, and the solution is to bring life back with all its complications. You know and. I know that that somewhere some and and there's a safety issue too for people walking alone, you know. If Mount Royal or any park becomes wilder, then there's more risks of um, you know of you know sexual predators in the woods too. So that's a that's another problem. But but I I don't see us having any choice. I think that that's that's sort of what we got to do. It's part of the mission. And um, and dealing with the consequences will be part of the mission too. There'll be more bugs, more everything. But we need to we need to do that. That's the insects are dying. We cannot survive without the insects. So we got to bring them back one way or the other. Yeah, I I wonder how much more insects there would be though, because it seems to me like the worst bugs that I've encountered for the most part 
are in like really disturbed ecosystems. Like yep. in more established ecosystems, yep. there's so many things around yep. that are eating the mosquitoes yep. that you get, you know, you get like a little bit, you get like some mosquito bites and stuff like that. But the places where I've just been absolutely eaten yep. alive, Near it's Tor- been like in, in disturbed ecosystems where there's... Yep. Near Toronto usually. Near Toronto is yeah. your worst? Near Toronto I've had ex- like uh, like... I, I, where you have to walk around mosquito netting because it <laughs> is there's you will be eaten alive literally yes yeah the, no, the worst yeah the worst I've ever seen was in the Muskoka Lakes yeah. region that was insane like uh, that's where I encountered deer flies which deer flies are a whole other kind of like they're like like. I don't know, like massad flies. Like they're like they're so intense. Like they can. I remember we got into a horse car. Flies. Horse flies are more intense. Um, horse flies are bigger, but I find deer flies are more nasty, and yeah. they're smart. Like yeah. they kind of they can they yeah. can fly as fast as you can run. Yeah, like you can't get away from them. They're persistent. Yeah, yeah, and they're and they go around and they oh just absolutely crazy crazy flies. But, Rewilding means more deer flies and more horse flies. But you know you know what's really weird is that this has changed my viewpoint, which is that. Like, okay, I don't like being stalked by deer flies either. <laughs> I don't like a deer fly biting my head. Yeah. But I've sort of switched around because I'm like, I'm looking at bugs now and I just noticed that I'm glad to see bugs. Like, the day we stop seeing bugs is the day we die. And similarly, same thing with winter. A lot of people, it's going to start now moaning. Oh, no, winter's coming. It's cold. Be thankful that it is getting cold. The day it stops getting cold is the day we die. Yeah. So, like, it's it's it's... It's good, you know. We need these things. It's it's uh, we got to remember this is the way it it's supposed to work. Yeah, you know, cold is good. Cold is beautiful. Cold is getting rarer and rarer on this planet. It's yeah. like special, and it has all these like crazy downstream effects. Like where uh, Annalisa's parents were living for uh, for quite a while in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, there are some biologists there that wildlife biologists that think that moose are going to be completely eradicated from New Hampshire in a few years. And the reason is that uh, moose basically get these ticks on them, right? And the ticks just like, you know, they suck their blood and stuff like that. And it gets, by the end of the summer, they usually are covered in so many of these things that it's actually like... Frightening to see. Yeah, it's actually kind of taxing their their whole like their caloric their a lot of their body they're, it's like they're being like vampires you know yeah. is going to feeding these ticks but then what happens is as the winter hits and you get those like really really cold nights a lot of the ticks freeze to death and fall off and the moose will actually go like will stand out in like you know minus 20 and like let like all these ticks just freeze to death on them and fall off and so usually by the middle of the winter, they're almost completely tick-free, tick-free. right? Almost completely tick-free, and that allows them to kind of restore. And then so there's this cycle that's been going on for a really, really long time where they get kind of a buildup of them over the summer, and then they get relief in the wintertime. Well, what's been happening now because of uh, climate change and because of suddenly winters are quite mild is that the the tick die-off doesn't happen. And so they've found, I mean, you can look online, it's quite disturbing, these moose that, you know, by the end of the winter, they look like just skeletons. They've just been bled dry. And so because of the 
the the warm winter, the, the sort of mild winter, it's like really, really bad for them. And a lot of them, they just <clears throat> collapse and die because right? they don't have enough fat stores to be able to survive that that long. You know, it's very, very sad. No, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Like the cold is uh, the reason why until the 20th century with kind of modern medicine and things like that, the reason why people in northern uh, climates had the longest life expectancy in the world is because the cold weather would kill off malaria and would kill off most of the kind of uh, mosquitoes and things like that. And now we're getting, because of global warming, we're getting all of these supposedly like tropical diseases are coming farther and farther north, right? But we're not going to, I mean, I don't think we're going to be able to undo that. We have to find a way to deal with, you know, the damage that's been done. Well, you know, like um, having looked a little deep into this issue is that we're in for interesting times. I I wish, you know, I wish I was a little bit younger only because I think that it's going to be a a major adventure. Like surviving the next 30 years, if possible, is going to be crazy. And I want, you know, you want to have like good boots and you want to be healthy and be able to run. So uh, I think... I'm sort of being semi-facetious, but I'm also thinking that's true. That's that that um, uh, you know, I should explain that in, in the course of this film, we went we went to some of the toughest, uh, the, the you know, in the spectrum of people that make predictions about climate change. There is a lot of variance, and there is like a whole zone now that is getting stronger, who are the all o- it's all over gang, and it, I, I think it's really worth. I've learned that it's really worth facing, and I'm bringing it up on purpose. Because I think that y- people need to face it. They need to face that things are so bad and, we, and we're, we're so wrong in our response to things that there's a lot of smart money on human extinction and human extinction soon, meaning even within the next 10 years, uh, even within the next five years. Guy McPherson, who um, runs a Facebook page called Nature Bats Last, he's a he's – a, uh, biologist from University of Arizona, but he's he's a sort of leading the school that says it's all over, and his view is that um, all the f- feedback loops are in effect; they're kicking in, they're way, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And uh, it's worth looking this in the face. I find it's a horrible moment for you when you when you face it, but um, it's the sort of right thing to do because. It makes life more precious and it also motivates you. Like I said, I wasn't really an environmentalist before, but I am now because I'm like, how am, how am I going to survive? How is my, how my family, you know, the rest of us going to survive? How are the animals going to survive if we don't do something? And um, these guys, it's a good motivation. I, I, there's a really interesting psychological phenomenon that goes on when people face this, but I don't want to. I don't want to blab on too much about it in case it's not really. No, bad. what is the what is the psychological phenomenon like? Okay, well, well, if you a lot of people have this sort of instinct, and the instinct is we're fucked, um, and and it's because they look around, they see the winds blowing in the wrong direction, or the it's not the seasons are all wrong, or the water in the river is the wrong color. They they can see that there's a, and they know that when these things happen, they're harbingers of death. You know, it's not, you know, if, if you get a yellow wind, um, it usually doesn't mean like, uh, you know, it's going to be like a bad day and then it'll be better tomorrow. It means the beginning of something terrible. And uh, so people have this sense that 
we're in a lot of trouble. And the other thing is I think that once you destabilize a massive system like the environmental system of the world, there's no – why would it just like go back to normal? Once you destabilize it massively, and I think there's no doubt that we've done that, then it just goes somewhere. And it's going to go somewhere where it's going to be completely different. We will not have all the mechanism and all the life-giving properties that the current system has. So all these things will bring people to the feeling like that we're going to die. And what happens is that – and there's a psychological phenomenon. It doesn't, hasn't been coined. We should probably coin it where when a person looks very deeply at this, they have a very lonely experience, which – because death is a lonely experience. So they, they see their own death. They see the death of their civilization and then they see the, the horrible ignobleness of it, which is that the way this is going, we're all going to burn. Like it's just Brazil, that's the beginning. It's getting hotter and hotter, drier and drier. Eventually everything burns and all that's left is dust. That's, a, that's a, not only a possible outcome, but it's a likely outcome. So, so when you face that, it's you realize, oh, I'm going to burn. My kids are going to burn. And everything I do, including you know, putting this podcast together, <laughs> is going to be gone. It's going to be dust. You know, th- maybe there'll be like a time capsule on the moon that somebody sent, you know, which will sh- have you know, Facebook from 2019 <laughs> or something like that. And you're going to be like, you know, aliens will be looking at it in a thousand years. So... When you when that hits you, it's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible, and I've I've had a bunch of friends go through it, and they'll describe like the intense loneliness of it, and the horror, the unimaginable horror of it when you really face it. And I'm bringing it up because I actually think it may not be entirely true. Let me explain why. I'll put on my hypnotist hat. In hypnosis, we we deal a lot with people's phobias and fears. And one thing you learn is that we are really designed to be afraid. You know, we're very good at being afraid and that we're pre-equipped with a lot of paranoia, a lot of fears. And one of the fears that's very strong in all of us is the fear of the worst-case scenario. So in a lot of situations, like probably like I'm sitting in this kind of studio right now, I notice a lot of wood. I'm like probably a part of me knows that this place could burn down. There's no windows and I'm thinking, shit, like the door's locked or closed. <laughs> How am I going to get out alive? And a part of me is sort of ready to imagine the worst case scenario. So when, when, when I read about like all the feedback loops going on climate change and there's Guy McPherson saying we're not going to be alive in 2025, it, it triggers this instinctive fear that I have that it's the worst case scenario. The, wor- the feeling I have that things could be the worst they could be is really happening. And so... In hypnosis, we always learn to make this distinction, that there's a distinction between your triggered fear and reality. Why? Because you see, it helps you see that it's maladaptive. So let me give you an example. If I spend all my time with my phobia worried that snakes are going to bite my face because that's my phobia, I don't notice that I'm driving recklessly or I don't notice you know, other real threats in my environment. So, so I do have this fear of the worst-case scenario, and some of what's going on is that's being triggered by how bad things actually are and this feeling that I'm up against forces that are bigger and more powerful than I am that are inexorable. So, but when I recognize that this could be a deep personal fear, I then I'm able to sort of look back and go, maybe it's a little more unknown. 
things are bad, but we don't know how bad things like I'm seeing another phenomena. I don't have scientists to agree with me, but I think there's a there's a wildness that's happening naturally. Animals like I live in the woods and people are all talking about how climate change is killing everything. And I'm like, no, it's not. My the woods around my place were much wilder this year than in previous years. They seem to be like more alive. There was tons of bugs, there's tons of snakes, mm-hmm. tons of everything. It was really actually a good year for nature where I live. But but uh, I know that's not true, let's say, of Brazil, or I know it's not true of Barbados right now. But I do think that um, that is a lot going on at the same time, and it's not all bad. And plus, we are reforesting. We're just not doing it fast enough. Uh, we are reducing pollution in some ways. We're just not doing it fast enough. Um, hopefully, we're, we're going to get a gun pointed to our heads more regularly now. I mean, Hurricane Dorian, which is happening right now, is literally a gun to our heads. That's a slow, inexorable, imagine that thing grinding your existence away, which is what it seems designed to do. I see it as a purification uh, effect where nature is purifying its itchy, toxic scabs it does not like which are also called the state of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't I don't see um uh, I don't see nature as as having a a plan like that or at least if if nature has a plan I don't think I do. I don't think it involves us. I think we're um you know, one of the things about living in a place like Canada is that you realize that life is this delicate thing that is is struggling to survive. If you come from a desert or a place like Canada where it gets really cold every year, you realize that the real enemy of life is not other life forms. It's, it's the cold. Yeah. It's, it's the, the hot. It's the yeah. lack of water or too much water or something like that. So, I, I agree so that's you. like – and so I don't see it as, as having properties of mind like that. It, it's more that – okay, but before I get to that, just to, re, okay, re, no, to no, go okay. back to one thing, is what do you say to people who say uh, – because I know I I heard people saying the sky was falling, the end was supposed to be the end has been nigh for a long time, yeah. and and so in the same way that you know that Christians have been prophesying that Jesus was going to come back since he died, only like practically like for two thousand years they've been saying any second now, yeah, he's going to be back, and the right? world is going to end, and it's always going to be it's always around the corner, yeah, and they always like if you say well. Your numbers were wrong. Oh, I didn't carry the four. Like they, oh, my math was off a little bit. So, what do you say to people who say like, you know, these people like McPherson and stuff like that? They've been saying that environmental collapse was around the corner. I mean, definitely for my, I'm forty four. They've been saying that my whole life. Like I've been hearing that my whole life. That that total, you know, environmental apocalypse was around the corner. So why? You know, it's like boy who cried wolf, right? Like, why should we believe the boy this time? Um, okay, so so I would say uh, uh, I think you're right. I think that there is a, a phenomena where a lot of people get – it's a kind of anxiety where you see like, – let's also – I think of a – I've noticed this thing with scientists. So you're, you're studying the puffin population, you know, on a remote, you know, Antarctic island. And all of a sudden, they're in dramatic decline. They start to die. You're looking at a dead puffin. They're all dead all of a sudden. So what would that make you feel? That would make you feel like it's all going, you know? And you can see how how when scientists have their exclusive focus on one thing and they see that 
population decline, they then generalize it to we're all going to go. So, so yes, I, I become very curious about this phenomenon, why people are so gloomy. But I would say, the okay, there's a really – if you want to get scared, go to a website called Faster Than Expected. And what happened was that in, that a lot of the scientists or climatologists or climate scientists or, or people that are working in that area started publishing studies in a, a number of domains that are saying all this is happening faster than expected. The permafrost is melting faster than expected. The, the Arctic forests are burning faster than expected. Um, and there's a website where they put it all together. And when you look at that website, you're going like everything is happening faster than they expected. And you're going like Guy McPherson is right. Now, there might be things that are not going faster than expected, but a lot is. And even the IPPC or whatever, all the United Nations bodies that look at this are recognizing that it's worse than you think. And, you know, that whole movement Extinction Rebellion, one of their whole campaigns is just tell the truth. Like their view is that the government knows that it's all over or it's nearly all over and they're not telling people, which is a very interesting conspiracy. Um, But one thing I want to say is – um, that that I, I I blame sleep apnea. Um, if you, <laughs> let me explain why. If you have sleep apnea, you're having a near death experience in your sleep. Often your oxygen levels drop and you're ch- choking to death, so to speak. So you would wake up with this nightmarish feeling that like you just about died, and it would be the nightmare would be like oh, I can't breathe, I'm going to die. And then then you read in the report, you know, the lungs of the uh, of the world are burning, and it's like oh my god, I had that dream. So. What I'm saying is we are equipped for the paranoid nightmare that we're all going to die. And that explains why people express it so often as maybe a prediction or a fact. But the other thing I would say is that I, I completely see it differently. I'm a little bit mystical on this subject. I think it's not so much that why are we not – why are not th- things not worse? I actually see, see it as spooky that things are not worse than they should be. I think that, that – that given like given the fact that we deforested North America, given the fact that we churn insane amounts of pollution, that we we're, we've halfway killed the oceans, that we've that we that we've uh, forced plastic into the key rivers, that that we 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 choke off life at every turn. Why didn't why didn't we die like a long time ago? And in fact, it is spooky that we're still here. And it actually points to the fact that there's something else going on. I'm writing something about this right now, that that um, that there is a sentience or a kind of morality to life on the planet that isn't human, and that we are being kept. I actually think one of the terrible things is we're we're really like a bunch of spoiled brats that we've been given like this hospitable planet that is so gentle, like moss. Think about moss. Moss, you can just lie down on moss and it's, you can go to sleep on it. It's so soft and nice. The planet's full of all these like um, luxuries. Uh, the oxygen is so beautiful. There's gentle breezes that just waft across your face. There's somewhere right now, there's like somebody having a tranquil cup of tea overlooking the ocean. There's so much tranquility on this planet. That tranquility is made by the planet. I don't think it, it, it's just there. It's a tranquil, hospitable planet. And... Um, and we're the spoiled brats. We're the one like we're like thanks for the tranquility. Let me get drunk and throw up all over your carpet. You know. <laughs> well, I think there's there's two things going on there. There's one is that I think life on Earth um, is to some extent, and especially like individual ecosystems, are self regulating systems, which 
do, you know, behave or seem to behave in ways that like allow for certain conditions where life is optimal to pertain. So we know that that for instance the temperature stayed kind of quite constant. The average temperature has stayed co- quite constant even though the sun got hotter. Right? So things came into play that kind of cooled it, things like that. And you can see within ecosystems very often if one particular plant or animal gets out of control, something else will like check it and will bring kind of a, a balance. And that just looks like a dynamic system that is trying to sort of maintain some kind of equilibrium. But the second thing I find far more fascinating about what you said is this idea that we look around and it seems very kind of tranquil and very kind of made for us. That I don't think is an accident at all. And there, uh, there's a, a guest we've had on a number of times, an anthropologist, um, and she's you know argued that actually we're living to a large extent, and you can see this in the Amazon, in the kind of the sort of ruins of ancient orchards that were created by early humans. And so we look at the uh, early Europeans looked at the Amazon rainforest and thought. This is what pristine, this is what Eden looks like. This is what pristine, untouched uh, nature looks like. And it appealed to all of their romantic like impulses. But actually, when we've gone and looked in the Amazon rainforest, it's not true. The Amazon rainforest, those trees, it's not an accident that like every second tree happens to produce a nut that we can eat. And every second happens to have a fruit that we can eat. That's because human hands planted all those trees. And so the argument that is increasingly accepted by people now is that the Amazon rainforest, the largest rainforest on planet Earth, is an ancient orchard that wow. was planted by human beings. Wow. So there's a, they specifically like chose plants that were like that bed of moss, right, that were good for us, that we could... Interact. And they, they selectively did, you know, I guess what we would call now permaculture, right, in all these places. But then they were killed off by the European diseases that were introduced. And so by the time Europeans got into there, it would be like if some horrible, you know, zombie apocalypse or something wiped out all of the eastern townships and nobody was living in the eastern townships for, let's say, like 50 years or like 70 years, and then suddenly people came through there, and it's all overgrown like crazy, and you think, oh, wow, pristine nature. But actually, you're looking at overgrown farms and overgrown orchards, and and now we can see with, with new uh, imaging technology that there were all these massive human settlements, like some of them very large, with like lots of large buildings throughout the Amazon, right, that we just didn't even know about because they were totally wiped out before any, any mm. Europeans got there. Mm. So we have probably, humans have been living in some kind of better relationship with the living systems that sustain us for in the past. Like it's, so it's not as if like you have to, you know, invent, reinvent the wheel on this. Like we, we have done it in the past and we can, you know, there's, there's hope that we can do it again. So you mentioned reforestation. Like, what other kind of solutions do you see as the way out of this? Okay, so so the Wild X, which is the, this conference we're doing, we decided to really focus on uh, rather than 
like when you go to sometimes when you go to science conferences, there'll be people talking about you know atmospheric conditions, and then we just, we decided to just focus on things everybody can do, and like and some of the things maybe of things we haven't thought of, but but so reforestation. You know, everybody lives in a place where probably there could be more trees. And you might be in the middle of the city. There still could be more trees. Um, there could be trees on roofs. There could be trees in parks. There could be um, – there's just so much possibility. But the other thing, and it's weird how this is an obscure term, is meadowing. So meadowing is for more for the pollinators, but it's also nice. So instead of like – it is just a reality. Like, I, you know, um, uh, people have lawns and they cover their lawns with Kentucky grass, which is an invasive species, which uh, the pollinators don't particularly like and is utterly useless. And then they use herbicides to, um, to kill everything that grows there. And then they, um, uh, and then they also, and, uh, you know, they do whatever they want to maintain this beautiful green lawn. We all know that, uh, that lawns are virtually useless and we're ready for a generational change. Wouldn't, you could plant wildflower flowers, you can plant clovers. That's, Clover, that's meadowing. You could have something that's more like a beautiful meadow for your lawn rather than a lawn. And that would be home to bees. And, and this is an interesting thing too, as you know, and this is what I'm talking about, joking about you being a beast. But what beasts know, and I, I'm a bit of a beast myself, is that people who don't know this stuff think that bees are out to get them. It's like <laughs> there's a bee there, it's out to get me. Bees do not give a shit about you. They have other priorities. Yes, they really do. <laughs> Yes, if you if you grab a bee, if you step on a bee, you might get stung. But bees are actually amazing about avoiding you. In fact, one of the things I learned first thing I started learned when I learned lived in the woods this is a really weird thing. Is I would walk with a you know those head flashlights. Sometimes I would walk around at night with a head flashlight on my head, and I would see the weirdest thing because what those lights because they're strong and focused light they catch the light of eyes of animals. So if there's like a raccoon or a, a ferret or a fisher in the woods, the light catches the animal's eyes. And suddenly you see, as you walk through the forest, all the animal life is adjusting because there's an asshole human coming through. <laughs> and they all have to move through the forest and adjust so that they don't have a human encounter because yeah. they know that human encounters end badly for them. Yeah. So, so the whole forest adjusts, and this is a reality of all animal life. All animal life on this planet avoids humans virtually with a few ex famous exceptions. Um, and so, the, so, for example, you could meadow your lawn. Yes, there will be more bees. Maybe your kid's going to get stung more. But actually, overall, they won't, you know, and there'll be more snakes. And I was, I was remembering a story too. <laughs> it's a little bit off topic, but remember – I brought you to this crazy waterfall. You're yeah, like, yeah, I love you're that. You're like a snake manifester. I remember you went there and you're like, Albert, look, look at all the snakes. And I had, I had never seen snakes before. And somehow you like attracted snakes. And, and then you went to my house yeah. and you're like, and to make it even worse, you're like, look, there's a snake in your house. Literally, it came in, it came in the door when it was open. That was like, they were all over the place, but, uh. Yeah, they have a lot of them around. But this is the other thing, too, about, about where we live. Like, Canada is so – there's nothing to be afraid of except for bears, really. There's nothing to be afraid of. Or wolves once in a while. Well, well, there yeah, was that wolf attack yes, in Banff. Right. That was pretty good. But it, that, crazy. Yeah, yeah, but these things we know are extremely exceptional. They're yeah. They're very rare. And, and so, like, snakes are not can't hurt you. Bees can't hurt you. Wasps can't really hurt you. 
hornets, again, the same thing. Unless you stick your face in a hornet's nest, <laughs> you're going to be okay. You know, like they're not going to get you. They're not, yeah. they're not trying to get you, you know. And, and, and what we learned and what we were still taught is the opposite, you know, to be afraid of these things. Okay, so what are some of the other okay. things that people can do aside from planting lots of trees to actually so, fix so this? So part of it is to get the bigger thing is like how we bring back forests, not just trees. So we've got to bring forests back, which is, you know, the sad thing is that people do research on this. They're like some forests took 10,000 years to appear. So, you know, it's a complicated story. So one of them is we want to rewild uh, – re- reforest. But, but the other thing is I want to – I'm encouraging people to rewild universities. Let me explain. Um, I was shocked to learn that no university – like what – do you think that there's a climatology department in most universities? No. It's a specialty within other departments. Um, is there – there's maybe sometimes an oceanography, but even that is an obscure theory. There is no degree in saving the world, meaning if I wanted to go to McGill or Concordia and I'd be like – I'm worried about the world. Could I do my degree in saving the world? They'd be like, what are you talking about, kid? Why don't you take statistics or, or, you know, or uh, philosophy? Yeah. Well, they'll tell you to go in environmental science at at McDonald College. Which is also an an obscure fringe part of the university. I mean, why not? It should be a decree program. So one of these things is let's rewild our institutions so that the institutions reflect our social imperatives, which is that we're trying to survive. Um, and so I, I, one of the things I'm pitching is a d- degree program in saving the world. Two, because um, it's, it's multidisciplinary by definition. Of course, yeah. Um, the second thing is remeadowing. And then there's a, we're going to have there's – a, there's a lot of sexualities. There's a speaker on, on wild feminine sexuality because I think that's something that's really coming up. Um, and they're going to explain that. And then myself – I'm speaking about this, something actually I think you know a little bit about, but, but hypnotic sexuality, because what it points to is a kind of idea that there is an innate, natural sexual program that few people get to experience, uh, for sort of safe internal reprogramming that might help people get to their own sexual nature. So that's the rewild yourself part. So there's a rewild yourself component. That's not the only part of it, but that's Part of it, and there's another woman speaking about the necessity of changing our dreams, because a lot of people who might be hearing us talk, or people that really face climate change alone, have hallucinatory or real visions of horror. And if you, the problem is that if you have a lot of visions of horror, you might also manifest them. Sure. So yeah. we've got to change the way we dream about the future. And so there's there's a woman speaking about that as well. Yeah. Well, I I like, you know, in the in the Bible when Joseph is sold off into slavery by his like prickish brothers and he goes and he's in Egypt and then he starts getting all these dreams and he tells the Pharaoh, you're going to have, you know, 7 years of you're going to have like famine, you're going to have and so you need to prepare for this. And Pharaoh Actually, unlike our leaders, uh, Listen. Pharaoh listens. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, and so he says, all right, well, we need to like prepare. We need to build way more grain stores, and we need to have enough grain to last in those, those famine years. And so they, they prepare. Over a number of years, they prepare for these lean years, and they save lots and lots of grain. And sure enough, the, the lean years come, and they avert famine 
and because they've got this massive store of food that they're drawing upon. And so I, I, I read that and this sort of yeah. mythological and I think like, well, there's such an interesting parallel to our times right now. It's like we have all these prophets in our midst who are dreaming these scary dreams and they're saying you got to prepare for some rough years ahead. And, you know, why not? Why not just make all of these changes and save that? If it turns out that they were wrong, I mean, I doubt that that will be the case. But if it turns out they were wrong, then great. We've made all these like positive changes anyway. And we've got all this, you know, resources in the bank and things like that. I mean, I think what's happening in Montreal right now under like Projet Montreal is really, really is smart. I mean, they're closing down streets to to traffic. They're making it way easier for cyclists, for pedestrians. Uh, they've just bought up a bunch of like area around floodplains and said no more building on floodplains. We're Sorry, turning this into parks. The park near the airport. Yeah, yeah. And we're turning this into parks now because you know there's going to be more floods in the future. Climate change is going to ensure that we get. You know, once a century floods are going to happen once a decade. Right? It's funny that you mentioned that too because I, I, I went to the Ottawa River a lot during the floods, covered it. And what, what I was like, I was like the Ottawa River is misnamed. It needs like a more like ferocious name because <laughs> that is a motherfucker of a river. Yeah, yeah. And when fast. it floods, when it's flood, it is so powerful and it is unstoppable. And um, I've seen some of the dams there. Uh, ba- barely holding on, and what happens like next time? What happens when you get a perfect storm of all the, you know the, a very fast melt, a bunch of rain, all happens at the same time? The Ottawa River. The other thing too is that people forget Montreal is an island in these in the, surrounded by massive rivers, and, and it's also not that high above the ocean. Yeah, you know, it's when you add it all up, it's actually pretty scary. Anyways. I think you're right. Like, and it's important to recognize that there's a lot of people out there already doing the work. But what isn't happening is you're dead right in also saying that what isn't happening is that the people at key positions are not listening to the to the warnings, and the warnings are not even as abstract as dreams. You know, and you know, one of these interesting things, you know, with what's going on with the, the pipelines out west, is that you know, obviously the debate is a bunch of people were like, you got to keep the oil in the ground, and a lot of it's in the measure of these things. And somebody needs to come out and explain that. They have to say, yeah, there might be a point where we'd say, well, let's still get a bunch of oil out while we try to mitigate climate change at the same time. But they're not doing that because they're actually, like they're just, the the oil people are just getting their oil out. And then the people that are concerned about climate change are like, well, we can't just insist that they keep the oil in the ground. But you don't understand, if you measure the situation right now, we're in the eleventh hour. the The actual measure of, of things is that things are very extreme; they're very bad. That's why the, the oil needs to stay in the ground, not because we hate oil, not because we're against, you know, cheap petrochemicals. It's because that's how bad the situation is, and that's where that's the failure of leadership right now. Because the leaders should be saying that. What do you think about Elizabeth May's crazy gambit where the Green Party, where she's now said, I, I mean, it, it's, either, it's either crazy or it's unbelievably brilliant. But she's sort of said, um, no, we're going to completely open up Alberta oil and everything. We're going to, we're not going to, we're going to, however, uh, she says, you know, if I get in, the Green Party gets in power, no more foreign oil at all. 
we're basically just all oil is going to be domestic, and and our plan is going to be to wean ourselves off as soon as possible. But in the meantime, all oil is just going to be domestic, which is kind of a brilliant plan because now she's telling Alberta and everything, you're going to have lots of jobs for the oil and everything. It also means that the price of oil is going to go way up because you're not going to be able to get cheap like Algerian oil or, or Saudi oil or something like that. Um, and and they're going to have to. I mean, what do you think about that? I, it's it's kind of a like a wild, like almost like Trumpian, like unpredictable. And now for something completely different. <laughs> like, I, I think it's an interesting idea. I just think it's not likely to happen because I don't see Elizabeth May getting into power. So it's like an in, that. But that is the kind of thinking that we need, like kind of crazy ideas. But you know, I don't think it has to be that that loony. Like, I'll give you an example. There's a guy, Tom Rand, who who wrote a book. And it's funny that these guys, we're not hearing these guys, but this guy, he wrote a book about, I don't remember the name of it, I apologize, but his case, his point is that that a lot of the the changes that could happen that would make us much more self-sustaining in, in terms of energy in so many ways uh, are just not happening because they're not being bankrolled by the major institutions. Like, So he gives the example of Hydro-Quebec. The reason for Hydro-Quebec to have, have happened and for it to be on some level so successful in producing massively cheap hydroelectricity, at rel- I know there is calamities as a result, but a, a relatively um, you know, uh, unhorrific uh, side effects, there was a, the entire infrastructure of government got behind it. There was massive banks that came in with enormous amounts of money. That still hasn't happened. That hasn't happened around in Canada around climate change where nobody has said, um, let's put the same kind of money into reforestation or let's, let's put money into carbon capture or on the same level. Um, that's why I think pe- people are gluing themselves to banks right now because they're trying to wake that part because the bankers are going to die too. You know, everyone has sort of this belief that uh, somehow I'll be okay while everyone else dies, you know. But it's it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like I'm already seeing that we're pr- we're prepping for a Mad Max outcome soon. You know, all you, if you you drive in the country, there's all these good old boys driving in these souped up uh, pickup trucks that and they're raid out of you know the second installment of Mad Max. You know, it's 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 coming, is and it's already part of it's already here. Yeah. Well, that's the weird thing is that I think a lot of the people that I that I've met who are the most hardcore climate deniers by their behavior and their and you know getting like the the big drug and all that stuff, they seem to be kind of preparing yeah for some sort of apocalyptic thing. It's like, dude, if you're that chill about the future, why, why? do you keep acting like somebody who's preparing for the walking dead? Like yeah. what is what is the deal? And I don't I've never got a very good answer for that. I know that uh, Stephen Marsh, who's who's been on the podcast a number of times, as, as Stephen Marsh is uh, the journalist and writer and all-around interesting guy, and he's he's just got a contract to write a book on the coming American Civil War, and he says that a lot of a lot of those people sort of imagine it as like a coming race war or something like that. But he says, I think it's it's kind of a a misplaced anxiety about climate change. And so you imagine that it's going to be breakdown of society when it's actually breaking down of of ecosystems, right? It's uh, 
Yeah, it's a very, very scary, scary time. Another, I mean, obviously can, you can't. Can yeah, can yeah, yeah shoot, shoot, yeah. But you know what's important is it is a scary time, but a lot of these things are scary because we don't talk about them. And, and uh, we don't talk about, you know, community response. We don't talk about like, uh, you know, something's going to be done about the F-150 culture. I'm talking about the pickup trucks. That's, <laughs> yeah. those, that's a problem that's uh, getting worse, you know. Um, and, and, but, 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 and also the fear of climate change might be making people crazy. It's important when you talk about it, you know, it's the same thing as, you know, when you're diagnosed with a, let's say you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, God forbid, that at least that if you didn't tell anybody, imagine the horror and ache that you would experience at night alone. But if you talk about it and also you look at maybe there are some options, like where I am exactly with climate change is I think we've been giving a, given a terminal diagnosis, but I realized that uh, in the past, uh, a lot of people have been told they have no chance uh, it's always darkest before the dawn, uh, but that doesn't mean we're going to die. You can have a terminal diagnosis and you can still live. And, uh, but that, that is an accurate measurement of how serious the condition is, um, that it's terminal. It's, it, it, you know, you can't, you can't heat up the whole planet and keep heating it up and it goes on for very long. It won't go on for very long that way. It, it won't. Once the ice goes, you know, there's people that say that's it. So I'm, you know, um, I, I, I personally, I've been in some groups, like we started a group called Sudden Death, um, mainly just to talk about it. And we noticed an interesting thing that just the act of group discussion of some of these terrible fears that people have itself was relieving and also provided a glimmer of hope that, um, and that we know this, like if you, if you see that thing coming, if you see the bear coming and you just look at it and you go, boy, that bear is big. Boy, it has big teeth. Boy, it's strong. Boy, it evolved to bite my face. Boy, it, and you just keep telling that story. That's your, the bear is going to swallow you alive. But if you pick up a baseball bat and you take a deep breath and you go, this is it. And you're like, I'm ready. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. It changes the game a lot. But you're going to go down swinging. Kind you're going to go down Yeah, sw- yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of sometimes, I think a lot of the the sort of the culture wars we have and fighting over this and fighting over that and different like political factions and things like that. From some perspective, from one perspective, it almost looks like we're rearranging the furniture on the Titanic because we don't know how to stop it from sinking. So yeah. rather than dealing with like what's, you know, the bear or the sinking Titanic, we instead argue about cultural appropriation or some other shit like this. Like we just argue about something that is ultimately really going to seem pretty trivial to our grandchildren if there are any. Like this is where where I look at I look at it and I go it's kind of like white people stuff in the sense that um, there's there's all about like there's all this like argument about what's the right thing to do and what's the what's the proper way. This is why I think re- rewilding and reforestation is powerful because actually there's it takes out the control freak element, which is a problem everywhere, which is like fundamentally what white people are control freaks. And um, if you plant the trees, then you can just get out of the fucking way. Let the trees grow. They don't need you anymore. That's why reforestation and rewilding is powerful because um, it's not, it, you know, once you get it going, 
it doesn't need you and and you can let it happen and it let lets you let go of your control freak impulses a lot of the other things are all about um you know that people managing this uh people you know taking care of that and we know that we we're not capable we're not we're not competent to manage everything to manage the restoration of life let life manage the restore, restoration of life just get out of the fucking way I can't imagine a better place to end than that. That is fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to the conference. Well, and if people would like to participate in their from the they're in the Montreal area or they're close enough to Montreal that they can come here from New York or Toronto or yeah. something like that. Yeah. How do they do this? Okay, so it's called Wild X. It's at wildxevent.com. That's the website. Uh, it's October 5th at Concordia University, downtown Montreal. Uh, there are some very interesting people coming. Matthew Silver, the famous, um, I don't the know. wild he, man. Famous yeah, yeah. wild man himself. <laughs> famous performance yeah. artist. Uh, Darren Austin Hall uh, is speaking. He's he's um, probably the world's number one sound healer. Uh, there is um, Sarah Knight is speaking, who actually just mentions a powerful theory that the reason why a lot of us aren't doing anything about climate change is we're traumatized. So if you can sort of like sort out your trauma, then you can get to work. Um, and so there's a lot of that. And then there's a lot of people talking forest, meadowing, reforestation. Uh, um, it's, we made it cheap. It's 40 bucks compared to like a TEDx thing, which is often way more expensive. Yeah, it's like 1500 or yeah, something. Yeah, it's a yeah. ton of money. We made it yeah. really cheap just so people can show up. Uh, and make it happen. So um, all you got to do, the tickets are available now. You can buy them now on the website, October 5th in Montreal. Awesome. Thank you so much. My all pleasure. Right, come again.